0: Scientist, the Human Podcast advancing.
1: Welcome everybody to Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simrajit Singh, and I'm excited to present this Undergraduate Experience Plus episode where we'll be chatting with some undergraduate students and some not about their research experiences. This first conversation is with Mary Tajiri and Vicky Papaharmanos who were undergraduates at Barnard College in New York City. And for reference, this conversation took place in May of 2014. So both Mary and Vicky worked in Dr. Ray Silver's lab at Columbia University. And Dr. Silver's lab focuses on the mast cells, which are cells known for their involvement in inflammatory disease, It's also for the role of mast cells in the brain. So here we go, my chat with Mary and Vicki. So Mary, how long have you been working in Dr. Silver's lab?
2: I've been working with her since January 2013, so a year and a half.
1: Great, and what is the name or description, of brief description of your project?
2: Um, the title of my project is Mapping the Cellular Network in the Master Brain Clock, mm-hmm. um, The superchismatic nucleus is the body's master brain clock, and Mm -hmm. that's located in the interior part of the hypothalamus. Wow,
1: okay. And what imaging techniques, you can get as specific as you want, please get specific as you want here. What particular imaging techniques did you use in order to study the networks?
2: Uh, So I used confocal microscopy, Mm -hmm. um, basically looking at different peptides within the cells in the SCN and it is a laser um, microscope that you can actually excite the secondary um, antibodies which are fluorescent and so in that way I was able to analyze the tissue.
1: Wow and was it just the confocal microscopy or
2: anything else? It it was pretty much the confocal microscope. Mm.
1: Mm. All right and so Vicky how long have you been working Dr. Silva's lab?
3: Um, for, since my sophomore year, um, so first semester sophomore year, so now kind of three years, two and a half. Oh, wow, okay. So
1: now can you give us a brief description of your research?
3: Yeah, so I was looking into, um, where anticipation is housed in the brain, um, and so anticipation is learned, and so obviously there's changes that occur as, um, an animal's learning how to anticipate, or even Mm -hmm. how, eventually how we learn to anticipate, um, and so, I was just looking at how uh, the brain changes and where that all occurs, since it's not the SCN.
1: Molecular changes we're talking about. On a molecular level or... On a structural level. On a structural level.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So they know for a while now that it's not the SCN, which times Mm -hmm. the rest of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so... It's been really hard to pin down where else it would be. They're trying to look for, um, a lot of studies have looked into where there could be like a food-entrainable oscillator that controls all of your food mechanism, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be more of a circuit. Um, And so that's kind of where my research picks up.
1: So part of your research, you said that you are differentiating between two phases of acquisition. Yes. One being the acquisition of the anticipation and one being the establishment. What exactly is the differentiation here?
3: So that comes from a behavioral point of view, and so, um, like I said, anticipation is learned, and so it's not innate inside the animal. Um, and so, if you restrict food to a specific amount of hours per day, mm-hmm. um, so I did around, I did six hours, the animal has to learn when that food comes. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like a classical conditioning sort of paradigm, yeah. Yeah. Um, where they learn to associate the t- the food with the time. Um, and so the first couple of days, so for about three days, they have no idea, mm-hmm. um, and so after three days, which is that first acquisition period where the animal is still learning, um, the amount of time they'll run in anticipation of that food is really variable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so some animals get it right away. Other animals take a little longer. And so, but by, say, about, like, 10 days or 14 days, they'll have that timing mechanism very well established, so... Okay. That's the two phases.
1: So the super chiasmatic nucleus... Am I pronouncing it correctly?
3: Super chiasmatic.
1: Super chiasmatic nucleus is not responsible for anticipation Mm -mm. uh, as far as your research is concerned. And Mary, you are or are not studying the SCN. You are studying the SCN. I am, yes. And so since you're mapping the cellular network in the master brain clock, which I guess is the SCN, Mm -hmm. or another name for the SCN. Yes. How... Since we're talking about uh, neural cells here, how deeply are neurotransmitters involved in this?
2: Um, Yeah, they are definitely involved. Mm -hmm. Um, There's definitely paracrine signaling between different neurons within the SCN. Mm -hmm. So in the SCN, these cells are really actually communicating with each other in Mm -hmm. order to create and generate your circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. And so signals such as or, uh, hormones and neurotransmitters transmitters are very mm-hmm. important in creating that um, signal to transmit that rhythm. So an example that I could give um, to how these cells actually communicate with each other, um, these cells are located in specific clusters that mm-hmm. are characterized by spe- spe- specific peptides. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, they also have their characteristic phases of oscillation mm-hmm. in which they express their circadian clock genes. Mm-hmm. And this is analogous to the gears in a watch that have different phases of oscillation. Right. But these different phases um, are able to come together to create the, the time that you see in the face of the watch.
1: And you mentioned paracrine signaling. Can you describe what that is and how that differs from different types of signaling?
2: Uh, yeah, so paracrine signaling is from, basically, you're, you're sending signals through hormones mm-hmm. from one um, other gland to another, one type of organ to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: it doesn't just have to be the brain, it can be anywhere in the body,
2: right? Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. So, this question I was thinking about uh, picking Dr. Silver's brain with, but I'll hit you guys with it. You can tag team this one. Okay. Okay? So. Dr. Silver's uh, research, part of it, uh, revolves around finding, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, revolves around finding kind of a neurobiological basis for our circadian rhythms. Yes? And so humans have a 24-hour oscillatory period, and other animals, mm-hmm. right, not just humans, have a 24-hour oscillatory period in the absence of external cues, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the environment. No. So it's not just, oh... There are probably big animals out there. They're going to eat me. It's getting dark. I should go hide and sleep somewhere. No. no. So it, there are internal mechanisms that cause this. Would you guys be willing to kind of expand on
3: that? Yeah, and that's so... That feeds into another um, thesis that was being conducted in our lab. Mm-hmm. Um, Natasha Anthony was looking at um, how that internal molecular basis works inside the SCN. And so... Um, Basically, in absence of all like cues, your body does a, has a free running uh, rhythm, and so that's that twenty four thing that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's like a molecular pathway uh, that starts with two transcriptional factors, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> clock and BMAL. Um, do you want to take it away? Yeah. So no, go for it. Yeah.
2: yeah, so these transcription factors are a dimer. And mm-hmm. they enter the uh, nucleus yeah. in order to upregulate the transcription of two genes, which are called PER and... CRY. CRI, or mm-hmm. it's just cryptochrome. Mm-hmm. And what the girl in our lab, um, she found um, that these two PER genes, which originally were thought to be um, kind of co-expressed throughout the superchromatic nucleus, may actually not be co-expressed. And mm-hmm. so they may reside in different cells and may have different functions than the previously defined mechanism that you find in textbooks and you mm-hmm. find in, like, your yeah. average psychology literature. So
3: mm-hmm. that's a
2: pretty cool thing that she's yeah. been
3: looking into. And so then, like, to, awesome. com- to complete the whole thing, it's those purr and cry also for- form um, a trimer with, like, a tau, mm-hmm. um, and then those three go back and try and stop um, the expression of clock mm-hmm. um, and be mal. And so that whole... Thing takes about 24 hours mm-hmm. and so that's how, where we get our internal 24-hour rhythm
1: so you both you guys mentioned a bunch of uh things a bunch of abbreviations oh, right. i was gonna say right and would you be able to maybe give a bit of a more detailed explanation just for the abbreviation just so we know what we're dealing with here i know you, i know so per- genes just have yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, abbreviations but if you abbreviated any, any proteins or peptides, mm-hmm. would you be able to expand on those?
3: So, clock and BMAL, another name for BMAL is also cycle, and those are just their names. Mm-hmm. Um, and then PER is for period, and cry is for cryptochrome. Yeah, um, nice. And mm-hmm. TAU is just TAU, mm-hmm. unless you know.
2: I actually don't know what it stands for. Yeah. But I'm, they're just TAU proteins in the name. Yeah. Right. yeah.
3: Okay.
1: And um, so. Since you have both of you have been working in Doctor Silver's lab for multiple years, are do you have any interesting lab stories? Any maybe whether maybe if it was a challenge or maybe something funny happened or maybe uh, Doctor Silver imparted some sort of wisdom? Anything like that?
3: Um, I mean, definitely something that Ray has taught us is she's definitely. Anytime we make a mistake or something, and we try and say sorry for it, or like if we fumble on our words, or it's just something that we've learned to never be apologetic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely an important lesson that I've learned going into now the workforce and going into my continuing my science career um, Mm -hmm. to just kind of take ownership over what I do. Um, And I've eliminated a lot of the oh sorry, like Mm -hmm. this this may be a dumb question, but. Yeah. Um, all the qualifiers that I right. used to say, I to
1: say that all the time, right? There's no such thing as, evaluation. no, exactly.
3: Yeah. Um, and she's definitely promoted that. And since day one, um, mm-hmm. three years ago as a sophomore or two years ago, whatever that was, um, kind of, I've always been included and in presentations where I didn't know anything about mm-hmm. the science that was going up there. Cause I hadn't learned it yet. Um, I would always be asked like, Vicki, what do you think about that? Um, mm-hmm. and that's definitely something I can't, uh, I can't say, like, I know many other undergrads that have had that opportunity. Right. Um,
2: yeah, I agree. Um, she definitely has taught us to take ownership of our work mm-hmm. and to be proud of what we do. So if it's taking pictures on the microscope and being able to say, this, these are my pictures that mm-hmm. I've actually took, or um, this, is, this is my study, to really take ownership and to be um, excited about our research and to be able to share that with other people has mm-hmm. been something that I think through a thesis,
3: um, has given us the privilege to be able to do. Yeah. Um, as That's for fantastic. funny stories.
1: <laughs> well, you guys have one. That's great. I do. You I do.
3: <laughs> um, so there was a time, so I had sacrificed my mice and I had the brains in test tubes. Um, and I didn't know if they were still in paraformaldehyde or if I had switched them over to sucrose. There were like two tubes that I like, wasn't sure. And you do that in order to protect. Yeah. It's like cryoprotection. So Mm -hmm. when you freeze them, um, they're not frozen and then they shatter when you try and slice them.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, and so I asked Joe who is working in our lab, um, how I could tell because paraformaldehyde is like highly toxic and Mm -hmm. I would not suggest going (laughs) near it if you didn't have to. Um, and Joe kind of just looked at it and he was, he like flipped it over and like touched his finger to the solution and then licked it. And he was like, Yeah, that's too gross. <laughs> Mind you, the brains he were still a, in there. That's a huge risk. That's a huge a risk. Point. I mean, it was 50 yeah. 50. But he, I guess he had faith that I didn't forget to switch them over, which is, like, Or
1: maybe he's thing. used that detection method before. That's really interesting.
3: It seemed like he probably that. had. I mean, sucrose is sweet, so yeah. I mm-hmm. would... And paraphernalia is highly toxic. Exactly. Wow. So he could have either died or confirmed my sucrose <laughs> transition.
1: had well, it was a ladder or not.
3: <laughs> but that's a funny story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've definitely... I think also having four students, four senior students doing the thesis Mm. in this lab has been such an incredible experience. I've learned Mm. not only a a lot about my own project and Mm. about the science that I've been doing, but Mary's project and Natasha's project and Mm. another girl, Michelle's project. I've learned a lot more about bipolar disorder than I think I would have wanted. Mm. Um, (laughs) And so seeing kind of everyone's uh, like transition from being kind of this like very inexperienced Um, student to now calling ourselves scientists and going off with so much more knowledge than what we started has been Mm -hmm. really interesting
1: so i was actually going to bring that up because both of you were talking with such fluidity about each other's research and about uh your other lab mates that aren't here right now you were talking you know with, with in such depth that i was like wow you know you're not only getting a deep understanding of the research you're conducting yourself but also of People you're working with, so I think that's a huge plus. That's definitely a testament
3: to Dr. Silver, though. Um, Since we started really working and focusing on our project last summer, and um, we would have weekly meetings with her. Where Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not in a classroom right now. Like this is not something that we had to focus on making PowerPoint presentations or like starting writing our papers, which is like what was due for our um, major. But Mm We had to sit down and, like, say what everyone was doing, like, how they were doing it, how they were thinking about carrying out Mm -hmm. different problems, like, solving different things. And it was so collaborative Mm -hmm. that, like, that's how I, I mean, I could basically say Mary's presentation for you. Mm -hmm. Or, like, she could probably say mine, like, the first few opening words. I think she's heard it enough.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's science, yeah. right? That's where it yeah. starts. It's just the, it's all that preparation. It's not yeah. just. I mean, of course, there is the cool imaging and all the brain slicing and fi- figuring out pathways and mechanisms, but it starts with a lot of preparation. I yeah, say that's mm-hmm. fair. And it's definitely like, very
3: collaborative. Definitely. Um, trying to solve different hiccups and um, mm-hmm. trying to make each other's project better, mm-hmm. um, like bouncing different ideas off, is also I think what makes research very rewarding. Yeah. Um, and what it is.
1: If you guys were to give one piece of advice to an undergraduate student who might be listening, if maybe they're thinking about getting involved in research but they're not sure, they're not sure how to go about doing it, what's one piece of advice, uh, whether about how to get involved in research or whether or not they should? I'm sure you'd (laughs) go one way on that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so let's hear it. Um, I'll take you guys one at a time. Vicki, you go first.
3: Um, So I definitely think... there's no question you should get involved in research Um, beyond the science. I've learned so many translatable skills into normal (laughs) life. Um, The responsibility that research teaches you is unparalleled, like Mm -hmm. to make sure that your work is not only um, a reflection of you and the dedication that you've put into it, which should be what you do in the, in your whole life. um, But also that this data then is going to, be absorbed into the rest of the scientific Mm -hmm. literature and to make sure that that um that that result what you're getting is valid um Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge thing to learn and also like like we said the collaborative things how to work on a team how to be responsible for yourself and work as an individual Mm -hmm. time management all that like especially if you're going into med school that's so Mm -hmm. important Mm -hmm. um not that I would know since I'm not there yet but hopefully there um Mm -hmm. And how to go about it, um, I think if you're reading through, like, if you're at a university, um, or if you're in a city like New York where there's a lot of, uh, research opportunities in different hospitals and you're trying to look through websites, like, just look at what research interests you, Mm -hmm. um, read a couple of the papers and then email, uh, the PI, the primary investigator, Mm -hmm. um, and say, like, hey, I'm really interested in this. Is there any opportunity for me? Can I assist? Mm -hmm. Um going about it that way.
1: Great. And you, Mary, any tips? Advice?
3: Uh,
2: I would agree with everything that Vicki said. Mm. Um, I think just starting off reading the research of these um, professors and just being brave and just emailing them. Right. Uh, I think that was the hardest thing for me. Yeah, just like getting my. That's a key part, door. right? Yeah. Yeah. Not to
1: not to be nervous about it and just go for it. Right? Yeah,
2: because the wor- the only the worst thing they could say is no, exactly. and then you could just look for another lab exactly. that yeah. would interest you. So I think exactly. just doing it and um, being bold about that mm-hmm. has been something that I've learned throughout my process, um, mm-hmm. and that translates into asking questions, not being afraid to maybe look silly, but mm-hmm. putting yourself in a position to learn and not being afraid to to do that. Um, As well as you learn so many skills that will help you not only in, like, the workplace or in your future um, schooling, but also, like, with your character. You get Mm -hmm. to build things that are invaluable, I think you said. Um, And I think it's, like, an experience that you can't get just by studying Mm -hmm. and just by being in the library. You can do that forever, but you don't have these real world, um, accountability responsibilities
3: that you'd have in a lab. Right. And also with science, like, I feel like, so yeah, you learned it. Like I learned and I read a lot of papers on anticipation. Why does that matter? So what? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what? And that was like a question that I had to one ask myself and Mm -hmm. then also translate that to like, how would it matter to some random person walking on the street? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think you had a lot of trouble with that, Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely had to think about it for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I think you need to learn how to apply with anything yeah. that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Or anything that, like, we learn in a classroom or go, why? Why does it matter? But then so, you realize that
2: it does it, Yeah, exactly. And it's amazing to see, like, something that you think is so kind of, in your mind, insignificant mm-hmm. is very significant. Even insignificant results are, are significant because they confirm that this isn't happening, so what is? Right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I agree.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, thank you guys very much for speaking to me uh, about your research experiences. I really appreciate your time.
2: Thanks, Sam. You're welcome. Thank you for having us.
1: This next conversation features Habib Zaire, who is an undergraduate at Hunter College of the City University of New York, and he works in Dr. Jane Raper's lab, who was featured on episode two of the podcast, If you haven't listened to that episode, I very strongly recommend you do. I mean, I've listened to that episode about four or five times, and I was there when it happened, so it's very worth uh, listening to. Lots of good information uh, that we talked about, uh, Dr. Raper and I, uh, particularly about her transgenic cattle project, which is really interesting. And something else uh, which is related to that project uh, that her lab works on are the African trypanosomes, it's parasite, and part of what Habib works on is using human and mouse blood serum to isolate HDL, high-density lipoprotein, and TLF, trypanosome lytic factor, in order to get to the protein apolipoprotein 1, which helps humans kill some forms of this parasite, and we discuss this in the following segment. Enjoy. I'm here with Mr. Habib Zayer, who is an undergraduate research assistant in the lab of Dr. Jane Raper at Hunter College. Habib, thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you, thank you for having me, Sam.
1: Sure, and so let's just jump right into um, what you do in the lab and what you specifically research.
0: Okay, now before I jump into what I do in the lab, I'll give you a brief intro. Of the work that we do in our lab. Sure. So, as you may know from the graduate students and from Dr. Jane Raper herself, since you invited her for your podcast, we work with African trypanosomes and uh, a protein complex called TLF. Uh, the name is lytic factor. So, African trypanosomes, you know, as you know, they're, as you might know, that cause sleeping sickness in humans and the Ghana in cattle, and they're transmitted by tsetse fly, and they're Microscopic unicellular parasites. And from the name itself, you know that they're found in Africa.
1: Okay? Yep.
0: So in our lab, pretty much everyone studies the interaction of uh, TLF1 and the trypanosome and in some cases, even uh, Leishmanian species. Now, what is TLF1? It's a subset of our good HDL. So that's our HDL, uh, high-density lipoprotein, and that's 1% of your total HDL. It's a lipid-rich molecule and has three main components of our interest, which is your haptoglobin-related protein, your apolipoprotein A1, and apolipoprotein L1. Uh, the apolipoprotein L1 uh, has 16 different haplotypes that we know so far. So that's something that, you know, uh, we're looking at as well. So to jump into what I do in the lab, I actually help out the graduate student, uh, Jyoti. hmm and while getting started in the lab and helping her out with her work, I actually have my own small little project, and my smaller project consists of uh, using separate plasma groups and uh, generating TLF in vivo uh, through a process called hydrodynamic gene delivery. And um, the reason why I'm doing this is because—well, there's multiple reasons. One reason, as I mentioned, uh, one of the proteins of this protein complex of TLF1, um, there's 16 different haplotypes, and uh, there's a problem that we can, basically there's a problem that we cannot get uh, these 16 different haplotypes and create this molecule, so a way to generate that is by creating it in vivo, and that's what I'm currently working on, is creating uh, TLF in vivo in mice.
1: Got it. Right. So yeah. So you mentioned you're doing it in vivo, and you're using mice as the model, right? Right. So wh-
0: model.
1: What What is that like? What is it like working with mice in the lab?
0: So as an undergrad, I, I don't have much uh, contact with mice, mm-hmm. but I see the graduate students uh, handling it all the time, and yeah, I think it's, I think it's pretty fair. I think it's actually a good way, a good model of uh, to create uh, to generate TLF. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I think that's a great way to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. And so one thing that I've actually seen you doing and doing often is using something called uh, a sizing column or a fractioning column. Yeah? Right. So yes, what <laughs> what, is, what is that, and what is that good for, and what do you use it for?
0: All right, so the machine that you've seen me numerous times playing with um, is called uh, FPLC. So, that's fast-paced uh, liquid chromatography. And I just said the and column. Column. So, it's a densely packed bead column, right? And um, these beads inside have uh, tortuous path and holes inside of them. So, what I do is inject my sample. In my case, it will be um, serum, right? Mm-hmm. And the serum...
1: Ser- I, wait, is it, would it be serum from the mouse or from the mice? R-
0: right. So, it could be either serum from a human, right? So... Mm-hmm. It could be the serum from human. It could be HDL from human, and it could also be serum or HDL from mice as well, depending on um, uh, what, what 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 like your objective of purifying. Because the whole purpose is to purify Got a it. solution that you're introducing into it. And, um, uh, and serum. Itself,
1: and sorry to interrupt you again, but and serum. No what is your serum? Is a component of blood. Yes.
0: Yes, it's the liquid portion of blood, yeah. and it does not have red or white blood cells. Got it. Right. So, if you want, I could get into how to purify TLF and how to obtain it. Let's just, if you want me to get into that. Yeah, I can,
1: sure. Me, I mean, feel free. Yeah. Discuss your methods. Okay, so... I mean, dis- it's definitely interesting stuff. So, yeah, I'd love to hear about it.
0: Okay, so to obtain um, TLF, you have to isolate HDL from from uh, human blood, right? So, you take a human blood sample, you spin it down, the ultracentrifugation. That will will separate your blood cells and your white blood cells from the plasma or the serum, right? You aspirate the serum, right? And then you adjust its density by uh, by a potassium uh, bromide gradient. You also spin that down. And then that will further separate uh, the contents in the serum. And that will will leave your lipoproteins uh, floating on top based on density. And then you aspirate lipoproteins, and then adjust the density again. We use a potassium bromide, and that will further separate HDL and LDL molecules and other uh, lipoproteins. And then, as I said, TLF is a part of the HDL. So you aspirate the HDL from the tube, and you uh, dialyze, and then you run it on a sizing column, and then further uh, fractionating for um, uh, TLF1.
1: So the purpose of this is to isolate TLF one, yes, right. And then what do you do with it?
0: And then we concentrate it down. So we have, uh, let's say, just giving you a rough, you know, number: ten tubes of uh, fractions that is hypothetically supposedly H D L. right? Yeah. But since there's ten tubes, and let's say there's oh, one mil in each tube, that's ten mils of TLF in buffer and and. Whatever else that was inside the column, right? Yeah. So the next step is to concentrate that volume down into one mL. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? There's a we have a separate, we have a, actually a tube for that, and it has a, a concentrated uh, unit inside of it. And you spin that down rapidly in a high speed, and that would uh, take all the buffer and all the solution like water that's inside the sample, and uh, leave the proteins on top. Uh, in, in the unit above the... Uh, basically, it will trap all the protein and the solution will come down. And that's how you concentrate your um, your sample, your HDL tubes that you fractionated.
1: Got it. And what's the purpose of concentrating it?
0: Well, the purpose would be to uh, to obtain HDL in a stock. Mm. Right, so... So, basically, you can use HDL for our later experiments, whether it be killing assays, whether it be interactions with, um, yeah, pretty much, that, that, as from what I've been doing,
4: it's
1: yeah.
0: interaction within itself to see mm. what's, what, which uh, proteins are, and which component of TLF, or just introducing it with topazone to leishmania to see if um, the effect that HDL has, or TLF1 in our case.
1: Got it, well. You are a junior, correct? Or a sophomore?
0: No, no, no. I'm actually a senior. You're a senior? Yes, I You am. lied
1: to me. How dare you? <laughs>
0: uh,
1: <laughs> no, it's fine. Well, and how long ago did you start working in the lab?
0: So in Jane's lab, I've been working there for a year now. It's I started in March, and it's been a year and one month now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But my whole I started probably, I would say, two and a half, three years ago. I actually started in... Um, in a different lab, not biomedical at all. It was an environmental science lab, oh, okay. and I just wanted some exposure to research because I wanted to do research. And from there, I made a transition into what I really wanted to do, which was biomedical research, as what I'm currently doing now with Jane.
1: So, how did you get started? Whether you know whether with uh, in Jane Raper's lab or in the environmental science lab, like what? Well, first of all, a what got you interested in, in, in thinking, like, hey, I would love to get some research experience? And once you decided that, how did you go about doing it?
0: So, while taking these science classes as a freshman and sophomore, I wasn't really... There's one thing from learning from a textbook, and another thing from learning in a lab. Definitely, and, yeah. And learning things from a textbook, I understood, but I felt I would, there was something missing. So, I decided to sign up for... Um, a molecular biology and biotechnology uh, workshop, a six-week workshop, just to see, just to get some hands-on experience, and using what I learned in a textbook to, you know, to use. And when I did that, I was like, okay, this is maybe something I'm interested in. You know, this is, this is pretty cool stuff.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And then from there, um, one of my friend's uh, professors actually had a spot open, and he wanted someone to work with him in the summer, and I just volunteered you know and From there I, I, as I said I was in environmental science research, so I didn't know what, what I was getting into to be honest But I just I just wanted uh, yeah. I just wanted some exposure and uh, like any knowledge is good knowledge, you know So of course. I, I I actually stuck with him for um, a year and a half two years And then from there while working in environmental science I realized okay, maybe this is not what I want to pursue. Maybe I want to pursue something more related uh, to my interest since I am majoring in biology and planning on going into medical school. So then I um, was taking biochemistry at Hunter and then Joy T., she was my TA for oh, my biochem okay. lab. Yeah, and uh, we, you know, basically kept asking her about her research and she liked the way I work. And one day she emailed me saying that um, Dr. Chaney wants to meet me and interview me. So that was actually really good. I was really excited
5: about that. Ah, oh, okay. Ever since
0: then, I've been working.
1: Great. So you, so it kind of happened for at least in in the in Dr. Jane Raper's lab. It kind of happened for you, just by you, you know, showing interest in in your TA's research. Exactly. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, I I throw around the word, you know, you got to be proactive. I throw around the word proactive really often. And, you know, people listening might get annoyed by the fact that I throw that around really often. <laughs> but it's an important word, right? It is, wh- yes, wh- Whether indeed. it's, you know, whether you're being proactive in, in contacting professors yourself to, to get a research spot or whether you're just, you know, being active in class and showing, re- you know, interest in your TA's research like you did, you know, things can work out for you.
0: Exactly. And also taking initiative, that's a big thing that most uh do not do.
1: Right, yeah, a lot of undergrads might be nervous, thinking like, "Oh, hey, you know, I'm I'm just a I'm just a freshman or a sophomore. I'm just a 19 or 20 year old. You know, why why would a university professor respond to my email or take me on? But you know, a lot of times professors are looking for students exactly. to work in their lab, and they're looking for opportunities to teach.
0: Exactly, and yeah. uh, um. I'm in. I'm in a program at Hunter called MBRS. MBRS Rise. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's yeah, a let's scholar talk about that. program. Yeah.
0: And a lot of like, I just it's my first year, and I'm one of the few who were selected to to be in this program. They're actually in an, are already in a lab. So a lot of the freshmen and sophomores who were who weren't in the lab, they're, you know, I, I'm like coaching them, trying to explain to them that it's when looking for a lab, it's okay to not know them, like to not know what. Uh, the professor is doing in a sense that if you don't understand a research method or the topic that they're working on, the professor or the PI, they're, they're not going to be hostile. They're, they're going to be welcoming. They're going to uh, be happy to teach you. That's the whole purpose of, of why they actually invited you to to potentially participate in their lab.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: So that's something a lot of undergrads are uh, are, are scared of or are less confident in. It's actually... During the interview process of uh, emailing professors to not sound like they don't, like, they're basically scared that they won't know enough, Mm -hmm. which I try to help my fellow undergrads by telling them that it's okay to not know, you know, it's just why, that's why you have to ask questions, that's why, that's why the professors are there, so they can can enlighten you, they can help you learn, Mm -hmm. they can show you these methods, you know, so that's one thing I try to get across to my fellow undergrads.
1: Yeah, but at at the yeah. same time, right? Uh when you're let's say you're just emailing a professor that maybe you haven't met, uh, but you've been reading about their research online and you're really interested, um, possibly in working in their lab and you choose to email them, it definitely helps to be familiar with their research on more than more than what's written on their website, right? So you should maybe try to read a couple of papers and try to get into it and even if you don't understand it it's okay maybe you'll get a couple of questions out of it and that could be a starting exactly. point for an email right
0: exactly that that's actually yeah. a great way to do it
1: right and that shows some initiative
0: yeah, exactly again yeah. goes back to being proactive and uh, taking the initiative
1: yeah and so what what is this program that you, that you brought up the rise program can you tell us right.
0: about that so it's pretty much a government funded program that uh helps minorities in particular uh, an undergraduate and who are underrepresented in the sciences or financially disadvantaged
1: and mm-hmm.
0: pursuing a PhD or MD PhD in um, biomedical sciences so that that's the sole objective
5: oh, okay
0: so there's a series of workshops they um, uh, pay your tuition they provide you with uh, a stipend so there's, there's a lot of added bonus, uh, bonuses to it and benefits and as well as um, uh pay your uh travel expenses to uh participate in a national conference so it's actually a really great uh program and i'm really excited about uh being in it
1: right and you you actually travel to texas right you had you presented at a conference
0: right so i presented
1: uh what was that experience like as an undergrad that must have been amazing
0: so actually was amazing and that's probably i've been to multiple conferences uh prior so i've been to a conference in um Sagamore, which is in Lake George, uh, upstate New York. I've been to a conference in Vegas. This is all with my uh, environmental science research. Oh, okay. And I also been again being proactive in um, just signing up for conferences within the city. Uh, at Hunter College, Hunter College has their own undergraduate conference, and as well as other community schools. So that actually helps a lot. In the beginning, when I first went to um, uh, the big conference in Sagamore it was pretty nerve-wracking. I was really scared. I didn't, you know, um, there, there were judges going around, people uh, criticizing you, criticizing your work. You have to defend it. And I am only a sophomore, so I, I still don't know everything about, about my, you know, about, every, about everyone's work in my lab. But I understand now that it's, it's okay to not know everything. You know, that's how you, right. that's how you learn. And,
1: yeah.
0: You know, that's how you grow as a person and grow as a, as a scientist. But mm. going to Texas, I had, I felt I was more advantage I had more advantage just because I've been to multiple conferences already and mm-hmm. the atm- atmosphere was beautiful. I wasn't really happy with Texas itself but the, <laughs> the conference was um, was great. I loved it. And mm. next in November we're going to which is a couple months, we're going to Seattle. So that's that's also great. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'm actually pretty excited about that as well. Nice.
1: Great. And any so what what will you be presenting about? Could we could we get a little sneak peek?
0: Um, so in the summertime this summertime I got into a program at Cornell so I'll be doing a summer internship at Cornell and I do not know which lab I'll be in Mm -hmm. as of yet I'm actually currently looking at a list of faculty that potentially that you know catch my eye
1: Um, (laughs) so Cornell faculty out there look out a beach coming (laughs) exactly (laughs) Exactly.
0: and I also don't know if I still want to work within uh, you know parasites or viruses or if I want to switch completely into a different, you know, realm of biology, maybe yeah, cancer, yeah. you know, because yeah, yeah. while Cornell yeah. uh, Medical School and the biomedical graduate school is uh, it's a great program. So there's a lot of great scientists there. And yes. I, again, I want to take advantage as an undergrad and learn as much as I can before I actually get into, like, you know, med school, grad school.
1: Yep.
0: But as to answer your question, I'll, I think I'll be presenting my work that I've done at Cornell. Mm hmm. Or maybe I present the work I've been doing at uh, Jane's Lab. So, I actually don't know. But most likely, it's it's going to be the work that I presented at, um, the work that I did at Cornell.
1: Got it. So, Habib, what piece of advice might you offer to a fellow undergrad who might be looking into, you know, just begin getting into research a little bit? Of course, we talked about being proactive and just you know taking the initiative to contact people but what else might you say or what what inside info might you had about have about being in the lab
0: so besides besides that i would say that's actually a really hard question because that's to me that's really important and again besides that i would just say take your studies seriously and in mm-hmm. some way go to your advisors because as as undergrads, you you you'll have an advisor that's in your you know your field and at Hunter at least speaking for Hunter, your advisors are usually your P, PIs. So I would say get get to know your PI beyond the lab just by going in there, showing your face, and mm-hmm. letting them know who really who you are. Mm-hmm. I guess that's also a good way, and it, uh, I, I guess another way is as I said, you take your classes seriously. Just so the professor knows that you're a serious student.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, no, besides
0: no. that, I think that being proactive and taking the initiative and mm-hmm. reading all papers and that I think that's the ultimate way to do it. But I that's just my opinion.
1: No, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And just as a side note for people who might not know, PI principal investigator. Yes? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> who <Which> is generally <laughs> what we call uh the head of a lab. Right. Right. Alright, so Habib, thank you very much for chatting with me. I really appreciate your time. Thanks a bunch. Again,
0: thank you so much for having me.
1: No problem. Best of luck with Cornell and your future research conferences. Thank you so much. All right. Up next, we have two more people that work in Dr. Jane Raper's lab at Hunter College. We have Annabelle G. Almanzar and Izzy Abdurahmanov, and they've both completed their undergraduate degrees from Hunter College. And in Dr. Raper's lab, Annabelki, specializes in working with bacteria, while Izzy specializes in working with the parasite, the African trypanosomes. And in this segment, we discuss some of their undergraduate research experiences, as well as their post-undergraduate research experiences. So here we go. I'm here with Anna Belke and Izzy of the Jane Raper Lab at Hunter College in New York City. And these are not undergraduate students. They have completed their undergraduate studies. Is that correct? Yes. They are lab technicians, lab assistants, research assistants. So you guys are the reason that I'm going to have to call this episode uh, the Undergraduate Experience Plus. Because uh, I also nice. wanted to cover uh, kind of the in-between uh, experiences. Um, so, yeah, let's kind of jump right into what each of you research. So, and I'm lucky start with you. If you could take... 45 seconds. Can you do it in 45 seconds and describe some of your research?
4: Sure. So our lab concentrates on African trypanosomiasis, which is the sleeping sickness. Uh, there is a factor that is in our blood that can actually kill one subspecies of African Um That uh, particle or that component of our blood is also able to kill bacteria. So I mostly concentrated on Bacillus cereus and Bacillus anthracis. Bacillus cereus I'm using as a model organism to study Bacillus anthracis, which is the bacterium responsible for the anthrax disease. I'm studying that because it has been used as a biological weapon. So if we understand the mechanism by which this bacteria attacks our body, then we are able to find ways to treat uh, the the bacterial infection.
1: So what you're saying is that there's anthrax in this lab right now.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, we take all the precautions. It's BSL-2. It's not um, like BSL-3 or BSL-4.
1: And BSL are just different levels of uh, protection. Exactly. Right, that, that People yeah. who work with certain pathogens use.
2: Yeah.
1: Alright, Izzy, on to you. Yes.
5: Yeah, so I focus on what Annabelle was talking about initially with the trypanosomes. So she focuses on how RTLF factor kills bacteria. I'm, I'm focusing on how TLF kills trypanosomes. I'm trying to elucidate the mechanism behind how poor formation occurs in these trypanosomes when we kill the animal infective strain, if we are infected by the animal infective strain. I'm also doing research on the human infective strain because they're able to resist our trypanosomalytic factor. I'm trying to find out how they do this, where uh, their protein that neutralizes our trypanosomalytic factor is inside of them. And uh, also I'm working on another project where I'm trying to figure out the differences in killing activity between trypanosomalytic factor 1 and there's also a trypanosomalytic factor 2 that has been discovered in the uh, last decade or so. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm focusing on.
1: And you said trypanosomalytic factor 1 is found in HDL. Yes. right. High-density lipoprotein, the so mm-hmm. good cholesterol. Correct. Is trypanosomalytic factor 2 also found in HDL? Where is that found?
5: So it's not HDL. It's uh, it's called pre uh, uh, lipo lipids, mm-hmm. so, and it's also bound to an IgM. Mm-hmm. An IgM is basically the first antibody, it's a very premature antibody we make when we're first exposed to an infection. So that's the difference between uh, Tlf1 and Tlf2. Tlf1 is an HDL particle that, ha- that contains all the lipid factors, whereas Tlf2 is a much more compact, smaller uh, lipid formation bound to a large IgM antibody. Mm-hmm.
4: That's the difference. All
1: right. So, Anabuki, you, you said that you focus mainly on bacteria, and Izzy focuses on the parasite. And so how would you say, and you feel free to tag team this, how would you say your research methods uh, are different based on that, based on the fact that you're working with different pathogens?
4: Uh, it's totally different, because um, culturing bacteria, you have to use specific nutrients and also... Um, the time points are not, my time points are not the same as EC's time points. So, what I do you mean by to, time point? I mean like, uh, when you do experiments, you have to be able to measure um, time points, like incubation points. And in my case, my bacteria does not like acidic media. And as acid is the main or a really important component uh, when we do experiment with TLF because this molecule is activated in acidic media or acidic component, and it can release uh, one lipoprotein, one main lipoprotein, which is the pore-forming protein, apoprotein L1. And when this gets, this only gets released in acidic media, or as far as we know, it gets released in acidic media. So um, I have to be able to do my experiments within 30 minutes because otherwise my bacteria will die mm. in
5: acid. Uh, okay. With me, though, I mean, this protein, just it gets engulfed by the trypanosome, and the acidic environment necessary for pore formation is inside of the lysosome, whereas bacteria don't have the lysosome. These mm-hmm. guys are eukaryotic cells, and they do, so I don't have to worry about that mm-hmm. problem. Right. And also most of my... I'll, sorry, yeah. a
1: lysosome. Yes. Let's talk about that. Oh, what is it's a, a, yeah. a lysosome? Yeah. Okay,
5: yeah. so eukaryotic cells, these cells that we humans and other more complex organisms mm-hmm. are made up of, they contain membrane-bound organelles, so these membrane-bound organelles are necessary for the cell to carry out its uh, everyday functions. So the lysosome is involved in breaking uh, waste down, breaking down anything that the cell uh, endocytosis, endocytosis is when you take up something from the outside into the cell. So yeah, that's what the lysosome does. It contains a lot of uh, degraded enzymes that break things down, mm-hmm. Stuff like that. So and it has mainly, an acidic environment that you were saying. an acidic environment. And exactly, that
1: aids, which in, aids
5: in the pore formation. Right. So I don't have to worry about
1: the problem. <laughs> and how else would might your methods differ or do your, your experimental setups differ? Oh,
5: okay. So back to, when Annabelle works with bacteria, she needs to use a separate culture hood from us because these bacteria form spores and spores can infect everyone else's uh, mm. cultures. So we have to use different hoods. If don't form spores, her, her bacteria do, that's one difference. Uh, and also, I do 24-hour time points, so I can, as opposed to 30-minute time points. That's not really going to tell me much in terms of killing. Mm-hmm. So I have to wait 24 hours, about know, two hours at least, to see activity. That's one difference. So you're talking about spores. Mm-hmm. And so maybe Annabelle, you can tell us what
1: spores are and why they're easily... Uh, why they can easily infect other
5: other people?
4: So, spores or uh, mainly called endospores are the dormant stage of the bacteria. There are two parts of of bacteria. They can be in the vegetative form or in the stage form, in the endospores form. And vegetative just means that they are metabolically active, while endospores mean that they are not active. They're just not dormant. So. Um, it is really easy to like to get the media in um, contaminated by these endospores because they um, they are resistant to heat, to um, UV light, and to many other components, and they can survive for long period, periods of time in the soil or on the surface or mm-hmm. um, in anything basically, and whenever they encounter nutrients, they will germinate, and that's how the media will get contaminated.
1: Okay. So this, this, I guess, kind of highlights one of the differences between how bacteria might be, you know, might be uh, infecting other people or other organisms uh, out in the wild or in the lab uh, versus the parasites. The parasites kind of need and uh, they need a vector, yes. right? for the most part, especially African <clears throat> trypanosomes. They yes. in, in Africa. The, uh, how do you pronounce fly's name? Tt fly. I say tt.
5: Tt fly. Tse tse fly. Some Okay. I don't even know anymore. It depends on my mood. I'll all pronounce it differently. So right. So the the parasites need this vector to be transmitted, and
1: the bacteria can just spores. And
4: exactly. They can just away. live in the soil forever mm. until like uh, cows usually um, eats from the soil and that cow will get infected by the bacteria. The bacteria will germinate inside, inside of the cow and then that cow will die. And when it dies, all the fluids from that cow will go back to the soil and that's how mm. the cycle keeps moving. And also, we eat cows, right? Right. We eat meat. So the um, There might be some spores there, and when you eat the cow, since they are heat resistant, you will even though you cook it a lot, you will eat Mm -hmm. it, and they will germinate inside of you, and you get infected. You Mm could get food poisoning
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
4: and bacterial infections.
1: You guys are working on some really interesting stuff. Like when did when did you get involved in it? When did you you have some underground undergraduate research experience? Yes, you're not too far removed from your undergraduate career, yeah. It's been a year or two? so Right. So how, how did you first get interested in science and working in that? How shall I
6: start?
4: So. Um, my story might be a little bit different from EC's. Um, I am a transfer student from a community college. And when I got to Hunter, I didn't know anything about the system. I just knew that I wanted to major in biology. Um, a friend of mine actually was a freshman here at Hunter and she wanted to be involved in the biology department Uh, I went with her to the bio department to find out how it was and uh, she found out about HGMI which is Howard huge medical institute program at Hunter and she wanted to apply but she actually didn't qualify because she was a freshman Mm -hmm. I qualified because I was a junior so she encouraged me to apply even though I thought that Oh research is boring. Even though I didn't have any previous experience, I thought that research was just boring and something that I didn't want to do. Anyway, I ended up applying to Shimai, I got into the program and I then started working in Rapor's Lab.
1: So you, you Well, you said you thought that research might be boring, but you yeah. never tried it.
4: Right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I never had any research, research experience before. Mm-hmm. I come from the Dominican Republic where we don't have that. That's not a career choice for you. You are either a professor or you're either a doctor or lawyer. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't really have any research um, in my country. Right. When I got here, I found out about research and I didn't really like it at the beginning when I started working in the lab, to be mm-hmm. honest. But as time passed, I figured that I'm passionate about it, um, and I really like it. I really enjoy what I do.
1: And over time, you became better at it, right? I'm sure that Exactly, because yeah. uh,
4: the main reason why I didn't like it at the beginning was because I was too frustrated with the experiments. Nothing was working. My so idea. I had to develop my own protocols, mm-hmm. and that was kind of frustrating. When you don't have any science background, any research background, then you get frustrated a lot. And that's one of the main reasons why I didn't like it at the beginning. But mm-hmm. I think that uh, with persistence and determination, I think you get to enjoy what you do at the end of the day.
5: Yeah, wide words. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> how do I top that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how I started. I this was not my first research experience, Dr. James Labs. Uh, I started doing uh, cancer research at Cancer as well, and. I at first also never really knew much about research coming into college. I just was on the pre-med track, and I didn't really think much about how discoveries were made. I just took them for granted. you know, reading textbooks, you just you read all this information, you never think right. how, how did they even discover this? I, you don't care. you just want to get an A on the test. <laughs> but then I you know I realized uh, through advising, you know they, they recommended I. Go look for a research opportunity, and I decided to look up what labs we had at Hunter at the bio department. We have a lot, and I decided I'll start off with some cancer research. I thought that would be very interesting, so that's how I started. I got introduced to the cancer research lab at Dr. Jill Varnadis' lab, and through her, I kind of it was, it was a, uh, I guess a crossroads to to the entire bio department to see all the other different professors there, and that's how I got to meet Jane Raper at one, one event where we got to meet our faculty. And I was I was already finishing up my sophomore year, and I was already getting experience by heading and learning uh, how to deal with cells, dealing with model organisms, and how to do experiments and plant experiments and all the basics. And I talked to Jane because I thought her research was really awesome. I thought she was really awesome. And she also gave out little toy trypanosomes to the entire crowd. <laughs> that, was, that was something. I knew that was somebody who I'd love to work with. So I I came up to her, and I asked her, can I I do research one day in your lab? She said, I only accept juniors. Mm -hmm. And so my junior year, I came to her again. I said, hey, I'm a junior now. Can I start? (laughs) She's like, okay. And ever since, I've been loving what I do here. It's really interesting stuff. Parasites are super fun to work with, and by fun, I don't mean, like, fun, fun, because they can kill you. (laughs) I mean, very, very fascinating to work with.
6: Mm
5: -hmm. That's why I got into it. All right,
1: and you, something you mentioned, um, the beginning there was uh, first when you're just studying science in the classroom the stuff that for I guess the manner in which the courses are structured or just the instruction is given it's just that okay here's a textbook These, this is science like like either memorize it mm-hmm. or like this is just stuff you need to know so here go, go ahead right. and a lot of times and especially in undergraduate courses it's not emphasized the work that goes behind like you mentioned the work that goes behind the discoveries and kind of the issues that might arise. I feel like there's a lot to be learned oh, yeah. from, from those things, right? And now that I'm in graduate school, actually, I've, I've been noticing that the professors, and right, rightfully so, they're putting more emphasis on the research process. Right. Nice. And so now that we're learning more about the research process, we get to go back and really appreciate, exactly. like you said, yeah. the, the, all, all the work that goes into yep. the discovery. Oh, yeah. So if... On a daily basis, what do you guys say are the most challenging aspects of being or doing lab research at the level that you
4: do? I would say that you don't get results at the first try. Mm-hmm. You have to keep trying and try, trying try and trying yeah. until you get a uh, uh, data. Yeah, so it can be frustrating, but you just have to change one condition at a time and then eventually you will get
5: results Mm -hmm. for sure i mean for me a lot a lot of it has to do with so lately i've been learning a lot of new techniques and using a lot of new equipment i never had experience using before so that in itself was a whole challenge because there's lots of troubleshooting and you have to be very careful with the techniques you're using because you can mess up the equipment and a lot of a lot of my challenges have to do with the fact that I have to be extremely careful and learn the anatomy of all the equipment I'm using in a right. way to maximize my results and I've been you know trial and error trial and error you, you finally get it you you get better at it and eventually it all it all starts making sense so that that's that's definitely a challenge
1: and that's just the whole other field of science right it's not just about the, the bacteria or the parasite it's not just about the molecular right. uh, uh, biology behind the pathogens. It's also maybe the physics, right, yeah. that have to do with uh, you know your your imaging devices, or, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole other a whole other avenue of knowledge that you yeah. kind of come across. And if you don't do research, you never really have to, right? You never really have to learn about it in depth. Yeah. And so I feel like that's something you might miss out on if you don't do research. Yeah. <laughs> so do research. So do research. <laughs> What, so what is a piece of advice that you would give to a student, an undergraduate student, let's say somebody who's very early on uh, in their undergraduate career, and they're thinking, hey, I want to do research, but I don't really know how to go about doing it." So what steps would you tell them to take?
4: Um, I would say to first do research online and see that you might be interested in that. Even though, in my case, I wasn't interested in the research at all, and then I ended up loving it. um, I I would say that to be committed to what you really want, and if you go ask people if if you can join the lab, or just go out there and knock doors, because Mm -hmm. none of the opportunities will come to you. Mm -hmm. Just go there and get it. Yes, you have to be proactive and... Just get into it and see if you like it. At the end of the day, it's your decision. I don't think no one can force you to do research or not to do it. Mm-hmm. So just go out there, you have the opportunity that comes and just do it.
5: Right. Yeah, basically, so if you to, if you already think you're interested in research, you know, uh, look up your departments in your university or college. So if you're in bio, for example, look up all the professors who are doing research in that department, what their field of study is, see if that's what you're interested in. Email all of them. Mm -hmm. And chances are, they're all really busy, so most, if not all, may not reply to you, but that's okay. Because you can straight up go to their door, knock. I did that. It was terrifying my first (laughs) time. There were times when I just walked up to the door, shook my head, went back to class, (laughs) came back upstairs, and finally just knocked. Uh, and introduce myself, I, I mean, yeah, it's scary at first just to go up to professors, but how else are you going to get anything in life if you don't fight for it, right? right. And it's, it's a good trait to show, to show interest and persistence, mm-hmm. especially face-to-face. You, but there's always emails, of course, but mm-hmm. emails are not as reliable as a face-to-face right. confrontation, asking to get an opportunity. So yeah, basically networking, right, that's mm-hmm. probably the most crucial skill to have, College doesn't teach you it. You kind of have right. to learn it on your own, and that's how you only get opportunities.
1: Yeah. Unless you're a business major.
5: Yeah.
1: But the fact <laughs> is the fact is that networking is important in any, in yeah.
5: any field. Anything, it's, 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 anything it's in
1: life. Anything. What, if anything, is something that you found unexpected about the whole research game, the whole research process of, of working in a lab every day? Anything that you... So, we know that not every single experiment works out, but that's not unexpected. Yeah. That's to that's be expected, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. It, it, it's hard to, to kind of design the perfect experiment, yeah. if there even is such a thing. And so, what might be something that was a little unexpected?
4: So, since I didn't know anything about research, I have always worked in different, um, different jobs. And at every job, it was like a structure. You have to do this on a daily basis, it was kind of repeated. Um, But when I got to the lab, I figured that I had to write my own protocols. I had to try out my own experiments. I had to work independently, basically. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting someone to be there for me, to tell me what to do on a daily basis, and that doesn't happen. You have to be able to think critically and to think independently. Even though we have a great uh, mentor, Jane Raper, but she's not going to be there every single day to tell you what to do. You have to um, guide your own experiments,
1: mm-hmm. and that's probably very valuable, actually. Right? Maybe yes. in the beginning it seems hard, right? Yeah. it's all oh, i am I, new. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I have know, to know. Do what all to the do. things myself. But I feel like if you can kind of get through that and, and you're able to, like you did, you know, and you're able to do those things, that's—I feel like it's more valuable
5: than yes. than just. You know, accomplishing a list of tasks for somebody else. Is. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'll just add on—not not in the science aspect of it—but what I did not expect was how awesome the scientific community actually. Right, is, right. That, that you would not expect. We don't talk
1: about that often. We're all—we're all, like, yeah.
5: all human beings. That's <laughs> what I did not expect. Mm-hmm. That coming into this lab, we're all working, doing our experiments, stressing out, trying to get data. We're you know always studying up on the biology of what we're doing, but then outside of that. On the days we actually get to relax, we get to come together and just, you know, have fun, have a beer or two, discuss some things, some new, new ideas we may have that may sound crazy and then you start, you know, debating about science, but in right. a totally relaxed environment. Right, so, in, a, in an environment outside of the lab, exactly. exactly. And yeah. that's, that's the scientific community. That mm-hmm. I did not expect, how how amazingly awesome and chill we all are. Right. I think that's a great place. To, to leave
1: this chat, I want to thank both of you for your time. This is a fantastic conversation. Hope you had fun as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, thanks so much. Thank you. Up next, and last but not least, we have our conversation with Rachel Rosengard, who is currently a research assistant at the New York State Psychiatric Institute, working with Dr. Anissa Abi Dargum, doing a joint project with the Columbia University Medical Center. Rachel graduated last year from Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, where she worked with Dr. Matthew Kurtz in the Schizophrenia Cognition Lab. And so, here we go. I present the last segment of the Undergraduate Experience Plus episode. Enjoy. I'm here with Rachel Rosengard, who is a research assistant um, at the New York State Psychiatric Hospital Institute. Institute, which is affiliated with Columbia University Medical Center.
6: Uh, the work we do is, yeah.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. And Rachel is one of the reasons, uh, which I've mentioned in a previous segment, that I will have to call this episode Undergraduate Plus, because she falls in the plus category. Hmm. She is done with her undergraduate education, yes. You mm-hmm. went to Wesleyan University. Yes. And now she is a research assistant doing fun things, so... We're going to talk about all of that. So, Rachel, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you mentioned currently you're a research assistant, but at Wesleyan, while you were an undergrad... You also did a bunch of research. You got involved heavily.
6: Yeah. So
1: can we talk a little bit about what you studied at Wesleyan and what research you did?
6: Yeah, I studied neuroscience and behavior at Wesleyan. And my sophomore year, I got interested in pursuing some kind of research. And I hadn't ever worked with humans before, but I realized that that's where my interest lies, I think, in general, in people. So I started working in a schizophrenia cognition lab, and I didn't really know... I don't think I knew what that meant until I started doing it and a lot of it like cognition is something I hadn't considered before because it seems very psychology oriented and I was always such such a biocentric person so it was cool. Yeah, I studied several domains of cognition but my focus for a while was verbal memory so that was interesting.
1: So verbal memory specifically in schizophrenia papers. Yeah,
6: so verbal memory as a um, subcategory of episodic memory and so it's like processing, verbal information, and specifically in terms of memory. So we worked with schizophrenic patients, yep.
1: Right, and Mm. so, and where were these patients uh, located? Because you went to Wesleyan, right? Yeah. Which doesn't really have a medical center. Mm -hmm.
6: Yeah, we worked with other institutes like Hartford Hospital Mm. and another place called Intercommunity. So a lot of outpatient clinics, essentially. We worked with um, people that were stable. We couldn't work with people that were... Um, psychiatrically unstable because they wouldn't be able to perform in the ways you wanted them to so yep it was all outpatients that we worked with and we just developed relationships with all these other institutions
1: mm-hmm. so how did you get started what because like, you it sounds like really interesting research and, and a lot of times undergrads may not know where to start mm-hmm. how to get into this stuff so how did how did you kind of get started
6: Um, My advisor, my lab mentor was actually my advisor and also taught the introductory class for the neuroscience major. And he just had such a great, like, passionate way of lecturing and um, really knew his field well, which is, you know, I feel like that's everything you develop. You become interested in things that people pitch really well to you, which is not a bad thing. It's kind of cool. So um, (laughs) I emailed a bunch of professors and he happened to say yes. It was, like, good timing and we just developed like a an academic relationship and I stuck with it for three years almost four but I stuck with it for three
1: yeah three years so Mm -hmm. for three quarters of your undergraduate experience yeah you were a research assistant yes and I remember you telling me uh, one time in the past that by the end of it or maybe halfway through it you almost felt like You're doing a lot more than just the research, right? You felt like you were also the lab manager, and you were also doing a bunch of things and running around. So you had a crash course in laboratory.
6: Well, it was a small school, so it's not like we had other research assistants that were hired that weren't students. So it was like we had a lot of responsibility as students, which was a good experience. Being trusted with projects and knowing that you're—I don't know—like you'll you'll figure it out as a team. Like I had a good team, so that was really Mm -hmm. nice.
1: So how, how does that experience help you now, now that you're done with college? And you're, I guess, out in the real world, mm-hmm. air quotes.
6: <laughs> and, oh, God. <laughs> right. And
1: uh, so now you're a research assistant um, doing further uh, studies with...
6: schizophrenia.
1: Right? Yeah,
6: it's a different angle now. I work in brain imaging, and I don't work with cognition anymore. And I don't know, I think that working with patients for at Wesleyan um, helped me understand what it means to work with patients now, which is great. I can spend my entire day essentially reaching out to people, um, both healthy controls and then people who struggle with addiction and people who struggle with psychosis. So um, it's one thing to interact with people like that. It's another thing to also interact with people like that in research, which I don't know, which was a good experience. Right. reminding them that everything they do is voluntary and being grateful for what they're contributing to science. So that was, I don't know, I think that helped ease me into what I do now, because that is really what I do all the time now, is interact with people right. in the context of research. And it's like kind of a sensitive interaction. You do have to watch what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's really important.
1: Right. Um, yeah, like I, I, did, I spent some time as a research assistant in a psych uh, lab as well. It wasn't mm-hmm. with uh, patients, but we did have people mm-hmm. as subjects or persi- participants mm-hmm. and even even then and our studies were about uh race and stereotype mm-hmm. stereotype uh perceptions and we had to be very careful about how we introduced mm-hmm. um the study mm-hmm. whether it was just a computer task an input task or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be um so i can only imagine how how sensitive and how, how careful you have to be mm-hmm. when you're working with uh psych patients i guess Right. Yeah.
6: Also, the kinds of things that we consider in recruitment. I mean, that's what I do. I do recruitment. Um, when you're working with human populations, people are really complicated. And <laughs> it's true, and you really... It's weird in research. You're, like, reaching for people that can kind of be reduced to a characteristic you're studying, which is kind of a very bizarre way to frame something like research. Right, yeah. And... um, if anything, I've just learned that that's really difficult. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure where I'm going with this. No,
1: I mean, it yeah. makes sense, right? Because research in a lot of ways for it to have any meaning, I guess it, it's tough. Scientific research is tough to approach from a qualitative angle, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, I know psych research might be a little different in that regard, but there has to be some quantitative approach, right? So I guess that's where that reduction might come in. to, right. to make to make the results quantifiable and have some meaning scientifically. Does uh, that make sense?
6: Yeah, it does. And I think that the qualitative package becomes quantitative when you're considering... I don't know, we look at brain imaging, We look at neurochemistry. And when you consider neurochemistry in people or in anything, you have to consider exposure.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: So quali- like ha- having qualitative traits um, can translate into certain measures that we need to eliminate that's hard that's really hard and it, it's important to consider in this kind of research
1: can we backtrack for a second what exactly yeah. do you mean by exposure
6: um like drug exposure for okay. instance or even it's just life experience life experience, experience like, like okay. head trauma like accidents even exposure to types of anesthesia stuff like that things mm-hmm. that I never thought about until now which is right. really just anything that could mm-hmm. affect
1: brain chemistry right yeah and uh, yeah. like
6: even we can't even play music during our brain scans so mm-hmm. we're looking at dopamine so it's right mm-hmm. mm-hmm. listening to so music would probably interesting.
1: upregulate dopamine something
6: like that something yeah. like that yeah
1: <laughs> yeah I guess that's just a testament to how for I guess back to the results I mean just to you have to so tightly control every variable mm-hmm. every possible variable under the sun in order to have
6: yeah. something
1: meaningful Meaningful. otherwise if you're you know once you're done with your study if, if you weren't too, too diligent In doing so then somebody who's criticizing your study might be like, Hey, hey, hey. Didn't you you,
6: didn't you notice that or how come you didn't think of that? Right. Yeah. No, it is really interesting because I think about I mean my job is recruitment. I think about like designing these studies and how stringent we are with the criteria Mm -hmm. for people and then how many how many people do disqualify. It's so many people. Like much more than like a majority of people definitely disqualify. And some people Exp- they get really upset on the phone with me, like why, <laughs> why, why? And all I can say is like, you just don't fit in a box. <laughs> that's it. You don't fit in a box, do a research you, box. And do,
1: do you use that
6: phrase? Yeah. No really? one, no one trained me to. Should you? I don't know. <laughs> just be like, oh, you don't fit in like a box, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, research is kind of it's stringent, so that's you know, for whatever reason, like right. this isn't working. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. But I guess it, it is kind of tough if they, if they wanted to, I guess participate in the study but you said you do brain imaging yeah right and so how do you explain the goal of -hmm. the study to to people you're recruiting
6: um we i guess it depends on the study but i tell them like the two the cohorts we're working with whether it's like you know many times we're working with people who are not psychiatrically ill so i tell them like yeah we are recruiting you to match our participants that have schizophrenia for instance So we're looking for um, healthy people to participate in a brain imaging study. We're looking at chemistry in your brain, specifically dopamine. It's this molecule that everyone has in their brain. We want to see how it reacts under certain conditions, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. And so do you only recruit, uh, I guess, the healthy controls, or do you also recruit the schizophrenia patients?
6: I don't recruit the psych patients because doctors do that. Okay, But I do recruit our quote unquote like drug abusers if we're looking at addiction. Okay. People who drink alcohol, people who smoke marijuana. hmm If there is a study going on like that. There's a lot going on at once, so <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> so the life of a research assistant very busy. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you decide that this is what you wanted to do after graduation?
6: I knew literally nothing about brain imaging. I knew nothing. Um <laughs> just what I read about in papers and I um I was I'm still really interested in schizophrenia I've always have been and I wanted to do something just something else and something that would really challenge me and like scare me Mm -hmm. scare me in that like wow what is a PET scan like this is big research, like this is um, investigation, investigative drugs. Like, whoa, that's a lot. And I wanted to, the, to see what that looked like. I also, like, okay, so I'm not an undergrad and I'm not in grad school. Mm. I'm just too indecisive right now. I don't know what <laughs> I want to do with my interests. I also mm. don't think I've given everything a fair chance. So that's why I picked brain imaging, and it's been really amazing seeing like MRI data and PET data and what it looks like, and then seeing what it what it looks like to execute a scan like that, and just seeing how limited it is. Mm. And it's definitely, it helps me criticize other studies, which I think you should do right. in a young field like neuroscience. It's like, mm. whoa, how limited are we? Pretty limited. But also, this right. is amazing what we're able to do like in such, such a small amount of time that neuroscience has had to grow. It's really exciting.
1: Can you explain how a PET scan works?
6: Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> PET, okay. So, let's just focus on dopamine for a second that's what we look at a lot of the time. So let's say we want to look at dopamine um, dopamine transmission in the brain. So we'll focus on certain receptors. So receptors are the things that are embedded either on cell membranes or inside of them to grab uh, neurotransmitters. So in PET, the chemists design a... They call and it stands
1: it, for positron emission tomography. Yeah, tomography. Tomography, yeah. tomography sorry.
6: Positron emission tomography. So you design a pharmaceutical... Basically, and you change one of the atoms in it to an isotope, a radioactive isotope, whatever that is. There are several different kinds, and all of them are like FDA FDA approved to be used in humans because it's considered a pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. So you make this pharmaceutical radioactive, and you inject it into a person through a vein, and it goes through their body. It passes, you know, you design it so it can go through your blood-brain barrier, and it latches onto receptors because it has an affinity for them, and in certain cases. Let's say dopamine for instance, dopamine can outcompete that tracer that that pharmaceutical so when you have dopamine um, being if you have dopamine in your brain it'll displace that tracer so that way you can see how much you can compare levels between people mm-hmm. seeing seeing that difference you know um, and it's, since it's radioactive it's emitting uh, positrons and the PET scanner they're all different kinds of PET scanners but I know for instance one we happen to use it looks for something called coincidence detection so it emits two positrons in a 180 degree angle so the scanner like detects these two 180 degree coincidence, coincidence emissions and is able to generate an axis mm. and, and so it localizes what's where that is
1: and how is this visualized on a screen what do you see when the scan is done?
6: I um, actually haven't seen that part of the data. I know there's a lot of that goes into it. Like technologists have to do a lot with the information. They have to do something called an attenuation, and they have to reconstruct. So I don't really know what it looks like in between the stages. Oh, but I know okay. that eventually it gets um, co-registered or like superimposed with MRI structural information. Hmm. But I think for a while it doesn't really look like a brain. I think it looks like... Pet data. I don't mm. know what that raw information looks like, right. but I know it needs to go through many steps before it becomes usable.
1: So it sounds like you also have to do an MRI yes, to make this useful. you have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. you have to. Got it. Mm-hmm. Wow, that really is really interesting. Yeah, it is right.
6: Yeah, yeah. it's like pretty. It's, it's very so, cool. Someone thought of this. Like people yeah, thought of people this. People thought of this. It's amazing.
1: And it was probably a physicist. <laughs>
6: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, yeah. it's such an interdisciplinary science. Mm-hmm. Like we have chemists on our right. on the, in the team. Like they work in a, with a cyclotron, and then there are mathematicians like who are experts at modeling the data,
1: mm-hmm.
6: and then the the you know the doctors that know about like the safety concerns of whatever they're doing to people or introducing to people. Right. And radiologists and, that, and technologists that, is, that can yeah. like understand the physics of what's going on, design engineer. It's such God. It's so cool. It's, it's like so I don't even know. It's like it's it's opened my eyes to this world of science. Like I don't know where to go. Where mm-hmm. do I put myself? It all sounds really cool. Maybe right. Well, I, now, I struggle with that. Like all I actually the time, yeah. am even more confused than ever. I don't know what to do next. But mm-hmm. it's really a great thing because right.
1: But at least you get to learn.
6: Yeah, the world exploded. Like, it's exploding (laughs) for me. It's great.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, at least you got to learn in depth about, you know, one particular thing Mm -hmm. that's really important and very useful in science, Mm -hmm. right? Imaging. Yeah. 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 That's super. So, what would you say is, could you offer a piece of advice to an undergraduate student? Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody really just starting out college and also a piece of advice to somebody close to finishing college who might be interested maybe in a grad program in science, maybe something else. Uh, what should this person do if they're looking to get involved in research?
6: I think it's a good idea to take your time. I always offered a master's, like a, a free master's degree in cognitive science. And I um, I turned it down because I wanted to try something else. And I don't know. I think either way it would have been fine. But I'm happy I didn't jump into like a PhD program or try to go to medical school right away. This right. is me, personally. Someone right. who wa- I'm someone who wanted to... I wanted a bigger picture because I really wasn't satisfied. I don't think you can be satisfied ever. <laughs> so <laughs> at some point, you're going to have to be like, okay, this is what I know. And I, mm. I know it like this. So I'm comfortable with that. I'm not at that point yet. Mm. I think you shouldn't feel bad if you decide to take your time and to try things. And I also think... Maybe I'm speaking from like a personal place, but... I really um, think you should believe that you're capable of doing things that are not familiar. It really freaked me out in my interview when I discovered that I was going to have to, like, draw blood from people. Right. And work with, I don't know, just, just, like, work with drugs that weren't FDA approved. Mm. It felt, like, ethically strange about that. It just felt like, why why would I be doing this? Like, I'm just mm-hmm. out of college and... Then you yeah. got there, and you're like, I, I remember. It.
1: Yeah, it. I remember a couple of years ago, we were talking, and I asked you what you thought about medical school, and you told me no, and I said, why? And then you said you felt a little queasy
6: right. when it came huh. to blood. <laughs> I know. So how about that now? I still feel queasy. The thing <laughs> is, like... Recently, I had some new research assistants practice their phlebotomy on my veins. Really? Because, like, that is how you get certified. You practice on people. Because, I guess, what else will you practice on? Mm-hmm. You can't practice on a doll. It's not realistic really? at all. Yeah. So, I let them do it, and I was pretty, like, revolted by the image of my own blood. Mm-hmm. hadn't gotten a blood draw in a while, but oh, I've okay. done, like, hundreds of blood draws at this point, and it doesn't disgust me at all. And I think part of it is, like, well, this is your job. You're not going to mess up because. Cause you're not, you're just mm. not, so you're not gonna freak out either. And right. I think you can apply that to any job, not just research. Mm. Okay, this is just me giving a speech about being post undergrad. I guess <laughs> um, you're fine, and you'll be able yeah. to do it if you just, if you want to do it. You're just like, okay, I'm not gonna mess up. Yeah. I'm gonna enjoy this. I'm gonna learn from this. <laughs> this is becoming a different kind of interview. No, that's fine. Oh God!
1: <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I think that's a good piece of advice.
6: Yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah. I'm just someone who was really scared of this, and I'm not anymore. So that was that's cool.
1: Right, and it it, it took the first step to, yeah. to get you comfortable. Mm-hmm. Even though you still get queasy.
6: Yeah, with, your own blood. with my own blood. <laughs> but you know how many times they do I draw my own blood? Never. Right. So it's okay. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, Rich, I really appreciate you chatting with me. Thanks for taking the time out. Thank you. (laughs) No problem.
6: Termination of Current Scientist, the human episode. Stay breezy.